You're listening to a DM podcast. How good is Australia? This fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms bloom as far as I'm concerned. But I ain't spending any time on it. Don't stop wearing the Speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Batuta Advocates podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never tuned in to the dark arts of federal politics. It's called being, you wouldn't believe it, a goddamn bloody adult. Welcome back to Decode, the Batuta Advocates political podcast series. And it is an exciting day today. My name is Wendell Hussey. I've got Dior Dave with me. And it's an exciting day because we have another proud Tasmanian joining the show. She's the MP for Bass down there in Tasmania. Bridget Archer, thanks very much for jumping on the internet and talking to us today. Thanks for having me. It's a beautiful day here in northern Tasmania. It's a lovely part of the world, northern Tasmania, isn't it? You're in Georgetown at the moment or Launceston? I live in Georgetown, but I, my office is in Launceston, so I'm here in my Launceston office today. Now, I uh, wanted to talk a lot about the last couple of years, but before we got into that, I wanted to get a little bit of a background into how you found your way into politics. What drew you to politics? Well, it was a bit accidental in some ways, um, and usually people find this a bit amusing for some reason but I met my husband and um, I moved to Georgetown which is a sort of small uh, rural town in northern Tasmania I didn't really know anyone there apart from him and um, he said hey um, local council elections are coming up you should run for that that would be a really good way to meet people which it was a good way to meet got out and sort of knocked on some doors and but got elected and um so it was a bit accidental and I, I enjoyed it. And um, over the next couple of years, then I became deputy mayor and then mayor. And then the opportunity came up to, to run in a state campaign. We have this sort of Hare Clark uh, multi-member electorates here in Tassie. And um, so uh, I ran on the, on the Libs ticket for the state election in 2018 unsuccessfully. Uh, they were successful. I was not. And... Um, and then the following year, a uh, federal election came up and they said, oh, do you want to have another go? And I said, oh, yeah, okay. There you go. Was your husband uh, working on any DAs at the time or anything like that when he suggested you run for local council? No, I think clearly on retrospect, I think maybe he was trying to sort of get me get me out of the house a bit or something. I don't know. But um, yeah. and it was a good way to meet people. Yeah, fair. And then so, yeah, you did find your way to federal politics. Obviously committed to the cause, going through years and years of um, local council and the bureaucracy there. Uh, what made you want to jump into the federal sphere? Well, I think the same thing as I really enjoyed about local government, I really enjoy now, and that's that sort of community-facing stuff. I love getting out in the electorate and talking to people and, you know, the opportunity, I think, just to represent the community. Um, that's the part I, uh, I really liked about local government and, um, you know, I still sort of try and take that approach um, to this now. So it's been a pretty easy transition from that point of view. Mm, it does seem like more so than a lot of other politicians, you still are a lot more community facing and, you know, spend time in the local community. Is it different now? Is it kind of just the same thing but with more travel and more bureaucracy? Are you still out there, you know, meeting people and getting to know the constituents? 
Yeah, I still do all of that and uh, obviously I have to go to Canberra sort of nearly half the time so um, that takes you out of the electorate a bit as well and it can be, um, I guess there's a few more layers of bureaucracy to get stuff done uh, now as a federal member, like obviously um, at local government level there's, um, you know, it's a bit more responsive in that way but, um, you know, it's the same I think Um, and it's Tassie's a small place and I live in, you know, small communities and you're running into people. You're down the street, you're talking to people and, um, yeah, it's great. I love that part. Still uh, just as many sausage sizzles or maybe less at the federal level? No, I love a sausage sizzle. Like, I literally do um, mobile office sausage sizzles and um, egg and bacon roll breakfast. So I was down the other morning at Georgetown with um, Tim and Kate at the Coffee Devil, if you're ever down here. Uh, and um, had, you know, egg and bacon rolls on the barbecue for truckies and tradies in the morning because you have to go and talk to people where they are. Not everyone's going to come into your office and it doesn't mean they don't have something to say or something they need you to hear though. So I try to get out and talk to people where they are and, uh, you know, sausage is a very good connector, you know. Mm. Um, The way to people's heart. Connect about over a sausage. Well, look, I have to put the coffee devil on the list. Sounds like they've got the goods there. Seems to be a bit of a Tasmanian thing as well. I've noticed that, that connection to the local constituents. Even though you guys could be flying out, as you said, for six months of the year and it could be very easy to you know come back home and slip into the office and do a few bits and pieces and then you're off on holidays or you're off back to camera. But it seems like Tasmanians at a federal level are really connected to their local communities and make a, a really concerted effort to represent their constituency. Yeah, I think so. I, I certainly do. And, I mean, you've got to go back to what what do you want to do it for in the first place apart from to meet people, which is nice. But um, I think you do, you know, you get involved because you want to make where you live a better place to strengthen your communities and um, all of those sort of things. So um, I think if you're going to do that, you need to stay really connected to the community and understand what it is that they saying and what they want and need so um i don't think you can do the canberra part very well if you don't do the community part Mm. just on the canberra part who's good company in canberra are there any um particular federal politicians you enjoy spending time with obviously you'd be spending heaps of time with your team meetings uh legislation all that sort of stuff but are there any any kind of um any of your colleagues from around the country who you enjoy their company and their good value yeah, there's a few. Um, I'm sitting uh, next to James Stevens in the in the Parliament this time, and James is a good friend of mine. And um, you know, we spend a bit of bit of time talking. A lot of my um, friends from the last Parliament didn't make it back to this Parliament, so <laughs> yeah, I miss them. Um, and you know, I've kind of friends, I guess, across the political spectrum as well. You know, I think we see the kind of argy bargy part of politics a lot but um you know people get along with each other actually Mm. across the aisle as well and um yeah so uh you know i I get on all right with most people Mm. do you find that you sort of gravitate towards the other tasmanians there i was going to ask you know in relation to really sticking to your constituents in tasmania does a part of that stem from Sometimes us mainland folk may be turning our noses up at you guys down there, even though it is a beautiful part of the country. A lot of Australians see it as a different part of the country. Do you Tasmanians stick together to make sure that you're there and you're heard? Yeah, we definitely do. I think that there is um, a bit of a 
um, an idea that the Tasmanians hunt as a pack if we need to. Um, and I, I can't think of any sort of shy flowers amongst the Tasmanian politicians. They'll sort of get out and uh, get their elbows out. Um, I, I'm particularly enjoying spending a little bit of time at the moment with Tammy Tyrrell, um, the yep. Jackie Lee Network candidate or member that um, was elected at the last election. We spent a bit of time hanging out together on pre-poll here in Launceston and got to know each other quite well. And um, so I'm enjoying spending a bit of time uh, talking to Tammy as well. Yeah, we spoke to Tammy a few months ago. She's great value, good fun. A um, couple of glasses of shardy, I imagine? Yeah, I mean, it always helps. It doesn't <laughs> doesn't hurt to have a, uh, you know, to connect over a beverage, I think. You've um, been known to cross the floor multiple times during your career. Did this make the adjustment to being in opposition a little bit easier compared to um, some of your other colleagues? You've seen that other side of the chamber, seen what it looks like. Yeah, maybe. And, I, you know, as people say to me, oh, is it harder in opposition? And, you know, I mean, I, I pick a fight with anybody, I guess, so it doesn't really matter. But, um, uh, look, it's uh, it's a bit different being in opposition. Um, uh, but for me, it's the same. You know, it's the same job, like my job has always been and is still now to represent the people of Bass, the people of northern Tasmania. They're the people who sent me there and, you know, I feel I have an obligation to do what I can to represent their views. And um, I think for me, if I keep that in the front of in the front of my mind, um, that kind of drives my decision-making, I guess, whether it's opposition or government. Mm. Yeah, I think everyone in the public sphere kind of agrees that it's great when politicians don't just toe the line. Did you get a bit of pushback when you started doing that or how did you come to the decision where you were confident enough to really make that move? Yeah, I mean, I get a bit of pushback now um, if I do that. But at the same time, I take the job really seriously and I made a commitment um, when I stood for election back in 2019 that would be like genuine, authentic sort of representative. And, you know, sometimes, you know, that's going to be hard, uh, but, you know, you should still do hard things if they're the right thing to do. And, um, you know, so I, yeah, sometimes I find it hard and sometimes I do get some pushback, but I really do feel um, with every decision that I've made, every time I've done that, that it's been the right thing um, to do. So I'm comfortable with that. Especially being in your electorate, I was doing some research. I believe that Bass has had the most federal members out of every electorate. And it looks like there's been a new one at every election since I think 2004. So it does seem like the people of Bass really make their voice heard and aren't just voting along party lines, but really do hold sacred that position. Yeah, I think so. I think it's um, commonly called the ejector seat, I think, of, <laughs> of Australian politics, which is a bit harsh. You know, and uh, it's been, well, this is the first time, I think, in 20 years that um, someone's held the seat consecutively. I think Michelle O'Byrne was the last member to hold the seat consecutively for the Labor Party. And we haven't held it consecutively um, for about 30 years, going back to Warwick Smith. So it's, um, yeah, we, we changed the curtains often in Bath. <laughs> <laughs> what were those conversations like on the first time you crossed the floor? I believe that was 
um, in regards to a national anti-corruption commission. You've since crossed the floor numerous times on uh, things like the Sex Discrimination Act, climate change, etc. But what were the conversations um, with you and your team and people you know you hold close and people within politics you respect about making that first decision to go, I'm going to step aside here and I'm going to cross the floor? Yeah, well, actually, it probably goes back a little bit further because um, the first time I think that I thought, oh, I'm really not too sure about this and I don't think I can support the government's position, and in that case, we were the government, and um, and that was going back to cashless welfare. And, um, you know, I feel really uncomfortable about uh, cashless welfare. I don't support it at all. We had to make this decision about whether the um, trial sites were going to be extended and I my sort of initial instinct was that I didn't want to support that and um you know I had a lot of conversations at that time with um people you know in the government who were I guess trying to convince me of why I should support that and um ultimately I abstained from the vote because and I abstained on another vote on that since we've um since the Labor government has been um in place and I guess that was really because I thought, well, I don't support the concept of cashless welfare, but at the same time, you know, I think people agree on the problem. It's just the solutions where they don't agree. I think I thought that there needed to be more work on solutions before we just took away the support that was there. But that sort of informed my thinking then by the time I got to integrity where, you know, I just felt more self-assured, I guess, more uh, confident uh, about this is something that we really needed to do, something that my community was talking to me a lot about. And they didn't frame it as integrity. They framed it as trust. You know, they would say, oh, well, all politicians are all the same or why would it matter who you vote for because we don't trust anybody. And, you know, that is a conversation about integrity. And to me that became very clear that if we didn't do something about that, nothing else that we were doing there was going to make any difference. By the time I got to that point, I was pretty sure that that was what my electorate mm. wanted and expected. But, um, yeah, it did create, you know, um, yeah, a lot of pushback, partly because I think the government wanted to understand why I'd done what I had done. Um, and um, obviously, you know, it's not it's not what people want you to do, you know, they, they don't want that and sometimes I think that's represented as like division or disunity and I actually don't think it is. Like I think it's certainly part of our tradition in the Liberal Party that members have been able to cross the floor on matters of importance to them and, um, you know, so I don't think it says anything about division. I think it just shows that we we are representing diverse electorates and we have to be able to do that. So. You know, I don't think it's right that I should, um, on a matter of some importance to my community, choose to do something different because that's what another community might want. We've got to try and find a way um, to be representing our own communities. And were you ready? I know you said um, you don't see it so much as division rather than, uh, I guess, a kind of robust democracy, you know, people having debates about ideas and showing their positions on certain things. But were you ready for the kind of the headlines and the the pushback that we mentioned there before that got generated as a result of the crossing the floor? Well, you, you obviously understood there would be some um, pushback and there'd be some kind of controversy element to it. But were you aware that it could potentially blow up as much as it did? Uh, 
Probably not. Like I said, going back to that sort of cashless welfare vote, like I was completely unprepared for that and um, the fallout from that and it was actually a really terrible time for me. I was a reasonably new member, I guess, Mm. and uh, it was just horrendous. Like I had sort of death threats and, you know, uh, people were sort of threatening my kids and it was really kind of awful at the time. So, no, I don't think you're ever really quite prepared for that. Um, but, you know, I think after that, certainly now, when I make those decisions, you don't make any decision. I don't make any decision I make in the parliament kind of lightly. Mm. And when I vote, you know, I, I've given it thought. I've um, tried to represent what I think my electorate um, wants. And I'm 100% assured now when I do that and I I guess it's sort of open to whatever comes from that, you know, I guess I'm more prepared for that now and uh, I'm comfortable that I'm with the decisions that I've made, I guess. Yeah, and how do you see some of that blowback, I guess, when you compare it to some other examples of politicians working against the interests of the government, like when George Christensen was part of the Liberal Party and undermining the government's efforts to protect people from COVID-19, or maybe Matt Canavan uh, talking about the net zero in ways that probably don't completely fit in with the party line. Do you see, do you try, use that to compare and say like, hey, maybe this is a bit unfair the way I'm being treated or? Yeah, sometimes. I think it's probably important to recognise that they both sit in the Nationals party room, you know, and although we're a coalition, we're kind of two different parties as well. But, yes, you know, I think um, sometimes I feel like there has been a bit of a a double standard and, um, you know, at the same time, you know, as I um, was crossing the floor on um, some issues, there were other members of my party that were doing that on other things and that sort of went without... um, without comment or observation. Well, now's the time for comment and observation. You've got the floor. One thing I will say is that, uh, you know, I've never done this kind of horse trading that is the thing that really does irritate me about um, some other people who who engage in that is that, you know, they'll be withholding their vote or threatening to withhold their vote on something that is unrelated to the issue that they're talking about. And I think that's a kind of personal pet peeve for me because um, I think we're sent there to deal with the issues that that are before us in good faith, you know. Like, and if I go and say, for example, you know, I think we should have an integrity commission, then I shouldn't be able to be prepared to trade my vote for an integrity commission off the something else I might want, for example. So I always try to just deal with the issue that I've got before me. But, yeah, I definitely do feel like there's a bit of a double standard sometimes. And, you know, we I use the example of Barnaby Joyce, um, who's crossed the floor plenty of times in his, um, in his career. And when Barnaby crosses the floor, people say, oh, that's just Barnaby. Yeah, he's but, just standing up for what he believes mm. in. That's it. So, I mean, I look forward to people saying, well, that's just Bridget. She's standing up for what she believes in. Maybe you need to post more grainy anti-vax memes. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I think with Barnaby, there might be a few other stories that are more interesting to report on than him just crossing the floor. So a bit more controversial ones out there for him. I don't think 
around for my anti-vax memes. No. And- so George Christensen, he was getting a he's getting <laughs> getting real um, real value out of the grainy anti-vax memes and posting kind of conspiracy theories on his official uh, social media accounts. Let him have that. Yeah. <laughs> What's the change of leadership been like over the last few months? Peter Dutton has stepped forward. He's now the leader of the opposition. Scott Morrison's out. What are some of the most notable differences you've seen over yeah, the last 12 months? Yeah, well, obviously we're not in government, so that's noticeable. And also, um, you know, I think they're very different kind of personalities, different um, people. Um, I find Peter really good to talk to. Um, he communicates, you know, well and often and, uh, you know, so... I, you know, when these things come up, like I've been happy to go and um, mm. and talk to him about that, and uh, you know, but it's it's basically the same in in as much as my job is to represent the people of Bass, and whoever the party leader is, their job is to kind of take all of the views of all of the members and try and um, bring those together to take forward, you know, as policy positions. So. You know, we have different, different but complementary jobs in some ways. That um, you know, my my role is really to represent the the people of Bass um, here, and um, you know, their jobs to kind of listen to me, but also listen to all of the other people um, in the room. So, you know, it's it's you know that's a hard job, I guess. Mm. With Peter Dutton, I just wanted to ask, and I guess maybe it's more broadly about the Liberal Party as well. Given the results of the last election and the progress that Teal's made in a swathe of seats across the country, um, as well as obviously losing uh, losing government, have you seen enough or have you seen a huge effort to modernise the Liberal Party? That's a lot that was talked about was that the Liberal Party needs to modernise and it needs to move forward and they need progress on a whole manner of things. Um, we kind of vaguely mentioned there the um, differing treatment of uh, individual politicians based you could argue on uh, their gender. Have you seen the Liberal Party enough from the Liberal Party that is addressing um, some of the the older kind of issues that plagued it? Like, have you seen enough in terms of modernising the Liberal Party since the election? I've certainly seen some work towards it, which is really good and important. And I'm seeing that work, like both at sort of the grassroots level, right through. But I think there's certainly a lot more work to be done and, um, you know, I think there are a lot of lessons to take out of uh, the last election and and I don't think it's a point that we've just kind of suddenly arrived at in, uh, you know, in 2022. It's it's taken some time to get there. You know, the Liberal Party sort of uh, actually has a sort of strong tradition if we go back um, for you know, women's participation and um, we, we had some of the first women, you know, elected to the parliament, for example, and uh, in some ways, like, things have slipped backwards, I guess, over time. Uh, so I think there are lessons, there, there are those lessons to learn, you know, from from our early beginnings and uh, and the beginnings of the Liberal Party uh, to where we've arrived at today. And, and that's my view is that in part... Uh, it's not like we need to completely reinvent ourselves. It's more that I think we've lost our way along. Mm. And um, we need to, in my view, return to those values, the values of the Liberal Party as Menzies, you know, established them even. And um, if they need to be 
you know, constructed for a modern a modern age, I think that's fine. But the values themselves are actually enduring. You know, the importance of the family, for example, you know, um, we talk about that as an important liberal value. Um, but I would argue, which I would argue it still is, but we might just um, have adjusted our view on what the family looks like, you know, um, for a modern uh, world. But I think the values are enduring and we should just get, you know, look to our history and um, and look to trying to reconnect with those values, which I think is what's slid um, over, over the last, well, decade or more probably. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, on modernization, do you feel at all that Tasmania, it does definitely seems from our perspective at a state level, they do seem to be taking these issues like climate change a bit more seriously than some of the other liberal parties around the state and maybe at a federal level. Do you see it that way? And if you do, is that a bit frustrating that where you are is kind of ahead and you're looking to the mainland and being like, come on, guys, catch up already? Well, I think in some ways it, it kind of goes to the point that I just made before because here in Tasmania, like, uh, you know, the Tasmanian Liberals, the Tasmanian Division, I see still really more um, working in that way that I was just talking about where there there is still the kind of broad church, if you like, within the division in Tasmania. We have, you know, small L Liberal members um and we have, you know, more conservative members, but people work, you know, quite well together um, to to represent the state. And, you know, um, these are not things, none of these things are actually inconsistent with liberal values. I mean, climate change is a good example. And when I spoke on that, I talked about how, I mean, importance for caring for the environment for future generations is one of the values in the Liberals' We Believe statement. Um and yet, you know, uh, it, it's almost like it's those things get forgotten, if you like, um, when we're having these conversations. So I think we need to actually reconnect with our, our values, remember what our values are and um, represent them, you know, perhaps through the lens of what's happening um, today. But I don't think you've got to throw them out and start again. They're right there. Care for the environment for future generations. I mean... Just do that. Yeah, and as you're speaking there about values, um, I think most people would agree that, you know, there are a broad set of values there and they're working towards them and there are values that they try and uphold. But in terms of the practical realities in things like um, women's involvement within the Liberal Party and uh, rates of members and rates of politicians within the Liberal Party who are female, do you believe something like quotas can help out and can make a difference moving forward for the Liberal Party? helping them kind of achieve their values? Look, I think everything should be on the table and I don't think we should not discuss it. But I would also say that there's not much point having a conversation about quotas, for example, if people don't want to be involved. You know, like Mm. if you want 50% of our members to be women but you can't get women to get involved because they don't like the culture or, you know, whatever the actual you know, problem is that is drive has driven them away, then it does, all the quotas in the world won't fix that. You know, you've got to actually deal with what the problem is and then you can look to something like quotas if you, if you need to. But I don't think it's a lack of quotas or a lack of opportunity to be pre-selected that has driven women away, you know. And we saw, that's what we've seen in sort of 
um, seats that have that we have lost to community independence women uh, that are you know focused on those issues that you talked about integrity climate the treatment of women and um, and those were issues that I think women and men deserted the party over at the last election and um, you know you need to deal with those issues those policy positions that culture you know, just saying, well, we'll, we'll take more women mm. is probably not going to be the answer. Mm. Needs to be part of a broader holistic approach. Well, people have want, people have to want to be involved. Like, there's no point saying, well, we're going to have a certain number of women involved if women are like, no thanks. It does seem like a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy there when, you know, women don't see the party as something they want to be involved in and then the party reproduces that because there aren't enough women speaking out. Do you think that there can be both that will be worked on at the same time. They, if you put out these sort of more symbolic targets like having quotas, then people will see that from the outside and go, okay, you know, they're trying at least instead of trying to fix the culture, which a lot, people from, a lot of people on the outside may not see the immediate results of. I think you've got to do both. Like and I think you've got to have a, like a wide-ranging issue. And, you know, I also look at something like the work that Charlotte Mortlock's doing with something like Hilmer's Network as another um, step forward because I almost feel like you have to go back a little bit and remind people that, um, that they are uh, liberal-minded, if you like, you know. And I think some of the people that... Um, have deserted us for the community independence, for example, they wanted to vote for us but they sort of came up empty-handed in terms of what they wanted us to look like but they weren't looking to vote Labor, you know, so they've put their vote then with community independence who I would say arguably are in a lot of cases more uh, liberal-minded than Labor-minded, if you like. Um, so we've always got to go back a point and say to people, um, you know, that we that we do represent those um, those values or or whatever that they were obviously kind of looking around for and couldn't find in us. I guess that's the point. So I think some of that is about not just hey come join the party, get involved with us. It's about reconnecting with people who share our values rebuilding in that way and and then i think your policy development and things coming from the grassroots up then as well yep now we um we know you have to run soon so we just thought we'd uh ask quickly one of the big issues down there in tasmania and we like to ask any tasmanians we speak to or bump into about it where do you stand on an afl team and and what are you doing to get an afl team uh down there if you support the idea of it well, look, I absolutely support an AFL team for Tasmania. Um, we 100% deserve uh, a team of our own. However, um, there's quite a conversation going on at the moment that says that we need to have a purpose-built stadium in Hobart at a cost of some $750 million uh, before they will give us a team. And I think that's a bit shit, actually. What's wrong with Blundstone Arena? <laughs> Bell Reve Oval, sorry. Uh, and and Utah's uh, stadium here. Mm, in the, mm. Well, we're hosting a Hawthorne uh, Collingwood pre-season game in Launceston uh, this week. You know, two great teams of the AFL coming here to battle it out in Launceston. Um, and, you know, I think I would rather see that 
um, some funding going into upgrading Utah Stadium and Blunston Arena, sharing that around um, and having a team of our own. Um, it's a lot of money. And, you know, I ran an election campaign in part in 2019 on a health, not AFL, not Hobart AFL um, message, you know, and we put $25 million into health in the north mm. instead of the Labor commitment was going to be into um, AFL infrastructure in in Hobart and so I don't think it would be any surprise that I'm not going to sort of walk that back and there's a there's a big divide between 25 million and three quarters of a billion dollars and um, you know I've got constituents you know living in tents in northern Tasmania and people that can't get operations and all of that sort of stuff so uh, it's it's hard you know but mm. I think people should uh, get on board Give us the money that they came down and committed the other day for grassroots um, development and um, some funding towards upgrading infrastructure. We could do lots of things with, um, you know, a pipeline of players and, and that sort of thing with that funding. And the, I, I'm certain that, um, you know, we will see this week when we've got Collingwood and Hawthorne playing off here in, uh, in Launceston, what would be possible with the facilities we already have. Yeah, they do take a few games down there each year and it always looks um, like a great atmosphere and good fun. So, yeah, hopefully they can sort something out soon Yeah, and you can get the, get the licence. I just wanted to get your opinion on this. If the team does go ahead, do you have a preference on what name they'll go with? Will it be one of the classic ones like a Devil or a Tiger or will it be something more local to Launceston? Like what, you guys have peacocks there, you have Japanese monkeys. Will it be one of those? I don't think it'll be peacocks or... Or the city park monkeys, um, but uh, yeah, no, I don't. But like you know, the Tassie Duck Jumpers, the um, the basketball team. I think that was a great name for them, and they're doing some fantastic things. And I think demonstrates why it's really important uh, for us to get our own team. Because if I see the growth in basketball, kids playing basketball, and they they love the Jack Jumpers, and they love being able to see that you know, you could go and play for the jack jumpers, play for your own team. Yep, I certainly learnt what a jack jumper was when that team came into it and now I know to avoid them if I ever see one. (laughs) If you buy one of those, you'll know what it is. Yeah. They sting. um, They've done all right too, the jack jumpers. They've they've done pretty well for a new team in a competition. Made the finals there. Done very well. Anyway, Bridget Archer, thanks very much for chatting to us today. It was a pleasure. Um, Thanks for joining us. Thank you.